Stay tuned for Occupied Territory America with Mike Fader. And this is Mike Fader, Occupied Territory America. I want to um, insist and demand and request all at once that uh, if you want to continue this uh, conversation or uh, check out other opinions that I have or um, political uh, viewpoints and uh, special articles that I post, go to our Facebook page. If you're on Facebook, it's called Occupied Territory on Facebook. So you Google Occupied Territory, and uh, I usually put something new up there every day or so. And we have a running dialogue. So information uh, very much like you hear here, and uh, some other stuff, and the occasional essay or uh, sermon that I preach on there. Occupied Territory uh, on Facebook. Now, we just had our election, or I don't know if it's our election anymore, but we had a bunch of elections across the country for everything from governor down to um, local initiatives. And as we have been mentioning on this show more and more, and I think we've all come to conclude who are looking with any degree of intelligence uh, and sense of history at American politics and culture, that we must work locally. Clearly, we have two corporate Uh, parties at the top in any national way, you're wasting your time. You are wasting your time unless you are in favor of Elizabeth Warren, maybe a little bit, Alan Grayson, one or two other people. That's it. But essentially, you're wasting your time with Democrats and Republicans at a national level. But at a state level and at a local level, that's where all the work has to be done. If we have a hope of retaining our democracy, and there have been local initiatives that were voted on, I don't know, there's probably hundreds of them all over the country in various states. One uh, that I've been focusing on, and I spoke to this gentleman who's going to be our guest in a minute on uh, Sirius uh, this past Saturday night. His name is Rob Sellen, and he's with a place called Protect South Portland. He's going to tell you more about what that is. But they had a vote on Tuesday up in uh, South Portland, Maine, Uh, And it's basically the people against big oil. And uh, the result he'll tell you about, and we're going to to get into that right now. Hi, Rob. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Well, I'm um, I'm feeling um, uh, a little, still a little bit tired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) These campaigns are are very tiring uh, on many levels, but also uh, energized. Uh, The awareness in our community is at an all-time high about the threat in our case of uh, pipeline reversal and bringing tar sands oil from uh, in from Alberta, Canada to be shipped through our port. So let's let's uh, 
Let, corn export. Let, yeah, let's let's describe for people um, exactly. I mean, people in other parts of the country are facing this too. All over the country, wherever there's natural gas and uh, tar sands. I mean, it's just, it's one big movement of people in local places against these things. But in your particular case in South Portland, maybe you could explain some of the history and exactly what the the initiative was about, which. Lost by only a couple of hundred votes, though you were outspent something like, I don't know what. Was it uh, 100 or 150 to 1 by oil? There? It, was, it was significant. Uh, you know, the final numbers aren't in for the other side, but the oil industry uh, once again demonstrated that money is no object. They have the money, and we estimate that they spent about $200 for every vote they they, they got in this election. Hmm. There were a total of about 9,000 votes, and we lost um, the vote count by 192 votes. So it was very close, and there were a lot of uh, very confusing tactics going on, so, particularly so, in the last two weeks. So let's get some of the history about what we're talking about and what the initiative was about, and um, we'll move on from there. Great. Um, for some years, in fact, for 70 years, there's been a pipeline company called the uh, Portland Pipeline, Portland-Montreal Pipeline Company that has brought uh, crude oil from South Portland to Montreal for refining in Canada. And as that business slows, they're looking for other opportunities. And, of course, with the pressure of uh, tar sands oil coming east, uh, they, uh, in 2009, were permitted by the city and by the State Department of uh, Environmental Protection to reverse the flow of their 63-year-old pipeline, an 18-inch pipeline, and bring uh, tar sands oil in our direction. That that actually um, um, was um, uh, that permit was not um, uh, held up. Mm -hmm. In other words, they let that permit go, and that gave us the opportunity to use the one power that we have as a community, and that's local land use. So we crafted an ordinance that affects the zoning which uh, instituted a, a definition that the accepted use on that particular pier that they own is the unloading of oil ships. And if that's uh, the permitted use, the loading of oil ships is not permitted. So in other words, the, the oil ships uh, had uh, crude oil from other countries, and they unloaded it, put it into tanks. There Was the refining was done there, or would they just... No, the refining was done up in, in Canada. Okay, so, um, they, so they loaded the oil into the uh, tanks at the waterfront, and then that was uh, sent by this pipeline up to Montreal. And what the oil company wanted to do is reverse that, have the tar sands oil come from Alberta down into uh, South Portland, Maine, and load it on ships. What would they, would they store it in tanks, the tar sands oil? And uh, what would be the problem with that as far as your group was concerned? Well, our, our problem is uh, twofold. Uh, first of all, the end of the pipeline is actually about three miles from the pier. Hmm. It's a large tank farm um, on a 101 acre site it has 19 tanks that have a total capacity of, uh, oh, uh, you know, each tank holds six, seven million gallons of, of oil. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're talking about large tanks, and these tanks are not, uh, like all crude oil tanks, are not sealed tanks. They have floating tops that go up and down with the oil level, and they off-gas 24-7 around the perimeter, of that, of that floating top, and that helps prevent uh, explosive gas buildup in the tank. So uh, over the years, we have built schools around this tank farm. And even, even, though, even, even though there was uh, a burn-off going on? 
Well, there, I have to correct. There's not a burn-off. There's okay, an off-gas. There. Okay, off-gas. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, that means that as the as the oil goes into the tanks and as it, uh, um, you know, it's it's an active uh, mixture in, in terms of tar sands oil or diluted bitumen. It's the bitumen that's been diluted with solvents, the most uh, dangerous of which is benzene and uh, toluene, hmm. yeah. uh, very toxic um, solvents, and those have to be. Uh, um, Ideally contained, but in these in the in these um, crude oil tanks for conventional crude oil, there's always that off-gassing, and that is a particular concern because of the high asthma rates that we already have in town, and of course, ultimately, uh, cancers. Well, so what, we what is uh, what exactly is off-gassing? I mean, tell me in detail what that means. Okay, what that means is you um, through a process of weathering, in other words, interaction with the air. Uh, these solvents uh, go into a gaseous state and become a volatile organic compounds, and they float off mm-hmm. uh, to be ingested uh, by, you know, to be breathed in. And those um, are absolutely um, not only contributing to, um, you know, ozone, smog, and so forth uh, on, at lower levels um, close to the ground, but also they're just not healthy for people to be exposed to. If uh, in, the, in the previous situation, uh, you described the nature of these tanks as they don't have fixed tops, right? They rise up and down. Um, but right. e- even before, why did South Portland build any schools near these places? <laughs> Who knows? Okay. It's, it's <laughs> I'm just asking. Histories of history. Uh, it was absolutely the wrong thing to do, and... Uh, uh, and now we're we're paying the consequences. All right. So uh, clearly, your group uh, is doing something to protect its community, the children, and everybody else there, and the environment. And um, so then you know, the ordinance is is put up for a vote. And then what happened after the ordinance was put up? Obviously, there's campaigning from both sides. Maybe you could explain how the campaign went from both sides. Sure. Uh, basically, the ordinance was immediately attacked by the by the opposition as um, as um, uh, as an anti-jobs measure, that we were attacking the whole waterfront, uh, that um, uh, and it was you know it was a classic kind of from the playbook um, response that we got. So they spent big and they created a, a very effective scare program or tactic uh, campaign here in town by commissioning an economic quote-unquote economic study where they paid a local economist $15,000 and gave him the following assumption on which to base the report that after this initiative passed, all the terminals, uh, all six terminals on our waterfront would shut down and all fuel, all heating oil, all gasoline would have to be trucked up from Boston. So completely false assumption. So they gave gave him his conclusion before he started conducting his um, uh, research? Uh, well, they gave him the assumption on which to base his his extrapolations and his estimates and so forth. But then they took his his findings based on his false premise and started advertising those in full page newspaper ads as you know that this this initiative will cost five thousand six hundred jobs. Uh, heating oil will be if it's available will be available at very high cost. Now what? Now, so, now what? What? What was false about this? Well, because it was all based on the assumption that the port would shut down, that all the terminals would decide to go out of business. 
Um, but if uh, but right now, like right now, they don't they haven't reversed the flow of the uh, pipeline, and that's correct. Tar sand oil is not coming your way, so these people still have their jobs as we're speaking. Well, see, once again, you're kind of getting into their into their what's it called into their frame into their, I, I'm just a, no, it's uh, a question. It isn't uh, no, you know. The, no, this this protect this protection ordinance that mm-hmm. we crafted actually protected all existing jobs and all existing businesses. Um, mm-hmm. In the, in other words, they could continue to offload ships. That's the permitted use from that pier. Right. So, um, but they're actively they're actively still doing that, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. Oh, Every okay. day, okay. We have barges coming in with fuel uh, from New Brunswick, from all over. We have crude oil coming in from Nigeria, Gulf of Mexico, um, Norway, wherever. And your and your ordinance, the way it was um, f- uh, phrased and the way it was put together, in no way would have eliminated these jobs, correct? But but man- they that's managed absolute, to they managed to sell that to the bo- to to enough voters somehow. They did absolutely. Uh, scare is uh, a very powerful. Uh, you know, being frightened is a very powerful emotion, and if you can get someone scared, um, they will react uh, very strongly and. Uh, and, and also confused. So, you know, the, the default vote for a, a frightened or a confused voter is a no vote. Did, who is the, the, you said a local economist. Is this somebody who lives in the, in the community? No, no, local in the sense that um, this economics uh, firm is based in uh, across the river in, in Portland, Maine. Mm-hmm. And uh, what kind of media coverage did you get locally, uh, pro and con, and who is doing the media coverage? Well, we have three local newspapers. We have a very active local newspaper scene, and um, those newspapers are The Forecaster, The Century, and The Current, as well as a daily paper in um, and some other weekly journals over in Portland, but the Portland Press-Herald is kind of the, I should say, the newspaper record for southern Maine. Mm-hmm. And um, those papers uh, ultimately took editorial positions against our initiative because they also bought into the into the fear campaign. Really? Uh, and, did, did they... and we... Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying one of the one of the lessons we learned, and and I would caution other communities getting organized is that when to anticipate this kind of fear campaign from the other side and uh, the jobs issue coming up and be prepared to counter that immediately. Don't Hmm. let them put you on the defensive. Have your own economists, your own reports uh, um, um, in place because um, the fear campaign is just relentless. So so this is an important lesson because there are a lot of people across the country who listen to the show and rebroadcast this show on in various smaller communities and 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 I know people who listen to this show who are activists in Pennsylvania, Colorado. A lot of it has to do with fracking and shale, but still with oil too. So listen to this these are wise words from somebody who just learned his lesson here. Um you really have to be prepared for them to come in and terrify everybody. I wonder, you know, they gave money, the oil companies gave money to the newspapers for huge ads. I mean, that's a kind of bribery, isn't it? Well, uh, you could look at it that way. Um, certainly, they spent. I mean, these were full-page ads, sometimes two to a, to an issue. Hmm. Um, I mean, we're talking about a campaign that spent uh, well over eight hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Um, so uh, the money was no object. The signage in town was uh, unbelievable. 
large signs, small signs. Uh, they even hired uh, those electric, uh, you know, flashing signs that you see on the side of the road. Yeah. Uh, those were going day and night, and uh, so the, you know there were no there was no restraint, and um, and then also they sent out mailers that were uh, technically illegal because they gave no attribution whatsoever. They all used the same PO box, hmm. which was the Waterfront Coalition's PO box, but they were like personal letters from a former fire chief or from a neighbor. Um, some of them, uh, no disclosure that they were a paid political uh, piece. And that, but isn't that illegal? It is, but how do you, in the in the heat of a campaign, how do you? It's done. In other words, it's out there. It's done. And mm -hmm. uh, how do you how do you pursue that? See more than another lesson, right? Maybe have uh, at least one local lawyer who's friendly to you on hand to uh, to deal with that. I, so you wound up with all this pressure and all this overspending on the other side and everything. You all got together as a community, and you had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. Um, you rang doorbells. You took out whatever ads you could take out. And you really only lost by 200 votes, right? Uh, that's correct. We lost by 192 votes. And um, so we came very close. And in one sense, um, we even had people who... Um, you know, or against Tarzan's coming to town, but felt, you know, they bought the line that this was somehow not well written or that it did threaten local jobs mm -hmm. and voted against it for that reason. So um, it's important, and I think the community is energized in, in recognizing that, yes, we, we have learned a lot. We have educated our fellow citizens, neighbors, about the threat to our, our health and uh, ultimately to our local economy. To our fisheries, you know, we're right here on Casa, beautiful Casco Bay. You know, looking out the window here at the islands across the way, mm -hmm. and the lobster boats and so forth. So, um, you know, it's a beautiful part of the world, and um, and this has been an oil town for many, many generations. And um, I mean, the oldest tank in town goes back, I guess, a hundred years. Well, that's another question I wanted to ask you: Is the state of the tanks and of the pipeline? I mean, are they safe? We don't believe that they are, but again, as a as a local group, we cannot talk about pipeline safety, mm -hmm. at least not in our initiative, because that's preempted by FEMSA, the, the Federal Pipeline Safety Agency. Likewise, we can't talk or control what comes through a pipeline. That's a function of you know control by interstate commerce, and in this case, it's an international pipeline because it crosses into Canada. So that's uh, that's uh, that's the State Department mm -hmm. and other federal or federal uh, agencies, right? Exactly, and uh, the whole interstate commerce issue. But the one power we have is to control local land use, and that's why we went after a, a very simple zoning change to change our land use zoning. So, and that, and, and zoning cannot put a business out of business. In other words, you can some a business might become grandfathered; mm -hmm. they can continue, but not expand or completely change their function. So, what's the next step for for your group? Well, the next step is to. Um, now that we've gotten this momentum up, the, our city council, our city manager, city uh, corporate council have uh, come up with an idea of, a, of an immediate moratorium on any pipeline reversal. In other words, a kind of a cooling off period while we craft an, another ordinance that uh, will address the concerns about jobs while still preventing a pipeline reversal and bringing tar sands into town. So we're encouraged that uh, 
that we're going in this in this direction. So the, it's not going to be easy. It'll be a, a committee at some point that'll be established um, mm-hmm. of all the stakeholders, and um, so it could be quite a large committee. It could be up to 15 people. If you know, if you have a lobsterman and a teacher and parents at the school right next to the tank farm, and you have the oil uh, oil folks and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know, in the next uh, couple of months here, we hope to get that committee going while the moratorium is in place. Uh, our mor- moratoriums are for a period of uh, 180 days and can be renewed once for another 180 days. But uh, can you have a special vote on a new ordinance that comes earlier than the next election? Uh, very unlikely, no. So if the moratorium is up and a decision is made... Uh, you have to hope the decision is made not to reverse the flow of the uh, of the pipeline, right? Exactly. Hmm. And if that decision does not um, come to pass, then we will uh, probably go to another initiative um, crafted differently. But um, you know, the the community is very committed to not allowing this uh, this product through our community. Um, and, you know, we're very concerned about what's happening in Canada with the First Nations people, with the with peoples, with the uh, the environment, with the animals, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the effluent from these uh, uh, toxic ponds going up the Mackenzie water, watershed, uh, up into the Arctic Ocean, etc. And right here at home, we're very concerned about breathing these, uh, these gases and uh, fouling our our fishing grounds and potentially having a, a spill right here in town. What is there any possibility of a court action? Well, um, in one sense, uh, you know they've they've been talking about uh, everybody's concerned about being sued by big oil because they have. Oh right, of course. Yeah. And and if, frankly, if we had won by 192 votes, I think we would be in court very quickly. They mm-hmm. would challenges on this and that and the other thing. So in that sense, we've avoided that uh, immediate um, challenge. Um, but I would say to uh, other communities, um, if if you do change your zoning, as we, we did in this case, controlling land use, um, anyone wanting to sue you has to have standing. In other words, they have to have a property that's affected by the by the new ordinance language. But they also have have to have a cause that's ripe. And, and ripeness in, the, in, in a legal sense. I'm not an attorney, but I've, mm-hmm. we have attorneys who work with us, and that's very important for any community to have your attorneys in place and to coordinate. There are national um, advisors that uh, can help your local attorneys also. But getting back to my point that, mm-hmm. that you can't just come in and tell a judge, you know, I don't like this. Uh, for example, the pipeline in 1970 uh, sued the state of Maine because the state of Maine wanted an oil spill uh, fund established. Mm-hmm. And they fought that all the way to the Supreme Court. It took three years. And the, the courts uh, uh, reaffirmed the lower courts in saying you can't come in with an imaginary uh, claim or imaginary damage to your company. So in other words, it, currently there is no um, active permit process uh, application in, in the works. Mm-hmm. So they, they really have no standing. They can't um, come in and sue for something that isn't affecting them. 
Well, you know, uh, uh, I hope, of course, I hope that nothing happens. But, uh, you know, if there is a spill, if the pipeline, which is old, or the tank somehow springs a leak uh, years from now, if, in fact, you can't stop this from happening and people are showing more and more illnesses, sometimes this is how people learn their lessons. But clearly we all want to prevent this so that your your group is doing everything it can. What, where can people go to contact you, other people who are activists or other people who are concerned about this thing in their own communities across the country, where would they, where would they go if they wanted to get in touch with you online? Well, I would say um, <clears throat> you can look at our uh, website, which is protectsouthportland.org, mm-hmm. or you could um, email me directly. Um, I have an email address, which is buglight2010 at hotmail.com. That's B-U-G-L-I-G-H-T-2010 at hotmail.com. Okay, I take no responsibility for what comes to you after you said that on my, on my radio I do, show. <laughs> I understand. Okay. But, All right. but it's, it's, it's my personal interest to be as helpful as I can be. All right. Uh, to other communities. So, uh, so the the, the situation uh, is uh, now in limbo because there's a moratorium, and there will be a committee, and there'll be meetings. And um, well, uh, I have to correct you, Mike. Uh, we haven't yet. Uh, the council has not yet voted oh, for sorry, the moratorium. Yeah. That's in. That's still in the works. We mm-hmm. hope in the next week or so that the moratorium will be voted on, approved by the council. It takes five out of seven votes. Uh, to approve the moratorium, and that gives us uh, the the time where we can craft a, a, a another uh, initiative okay. that the council can adopt to uh, prevent the pipeline reversal. All right. Well, uh, good luck with the uh, with the vote on that. And uh, you're keeping in touch with me, anyhow. We're we're exchanging emails, so I can Absolutely. tell people what happens. All right, Rob Sellen from Protect South Portland. Thank you very much. Mike, thank you. Thanks for your good work. Sure. Uh, Yeah, and um, there are other people out there all over the country dealing with similar problems, and some people have had success, and it's good to hear from somebody who's had this experience, even though they lost by only a few votes. You see, in a way, it's encouraging if you want to look at it that way, because you you get outspent by a tremendous amount by these oil companies. Uh, They use uh, reports that aren't true. uh, I'm saying this, uh, Rob is saying this. They bribe people. They spend money. Who knows what other money flowed in there to who? And still, the the vote was that close. So, uh, you know, you just have to keep at it because these people don't stop and they have money and you don't, but you have to keep at it. All right, thanks again. Thanks again. Uh, We're going to take a slight break here. This is Occupied Territory America, and uh, this is Mike Fader. We're here every Thursday at 2 p.m. on prn.fm. And remember, prn.fm is an important radio station. If you're not familiar with this station or you're new to this station, check out our lineup. We have some really fascinating, really important radio programs on here of all different sorts. And uh, it's worth your while to check it out. We're going to take a break and then come back.
Okay, we're back. Among uh, many things happened across the country, different initiatives, uh, votes that happened, and you can read all about them. I see a kind of an encouraging sign, and 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 I don't by that I don't mean that a Democrat, for instance, uh, a centrist corporate party Democrat, got elected in Virginia. Yes, let's go over this one more time. It'll never be the last time, I suppose. One of the lesser of two evils got elected in uh, in Virginia. They had one real right wing. Absolute crazy, bigoted, anti-woman uh, uh, lunatic running, a total Tea Partier uh, crazy running on the Republican ticket. And the corporate Democrat, who's a very good friend of the Clintons, got elected uh, by a very close vote down there. So that's better than if the other guy got elected. True? It's always true, uh, factually, when you say that. But in the end, that's never going to change the real problem in this country. And in fact, it's just in a kind of a way, aside from the fact that uh, this Democrat will be better than that crazy Republican. Uh, and for instance, this Democrat, his name is uh, McAuliffe, who's a close friend of the Clintons. He beat the guy named Cuccinelli, who was running for the, um, for the I think it was the Attorney General. He was running for the Republican, uh, you know, as a Republican candidate. And he got beat by, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand votes out of millions of votes. It was a close one, and a lot closer maybe than it should have been. And uh, McAuliffe is for, uh, you know, he's uh, for uh, a woman's right to uh, have an abortion and, you know, list a bunch of liberal issues. But as I keep insisting here, and that's the job, I think, of this program anyhow, I'm not interested in the lesser of two evils. I'm interested in correcting the major evil, which is the fact that, and this is not going to be corrected by a guy like McAuliffe or the Clintons or the fact that Obama showed up there. All of these people are millionaires. And they're supporting a system, even if they get elected on some issues that are good for people, uh, they are supporting a system which maintains an obscene, crazy, sick, anti-human income imbalance, an inequality of money and income. And they're, uh, they're, they're continuing to support, Democrat or Republican, a corporate culture which becomes worse and worse and worse every day and is more and more linked up with a police state. So you're supporting fascism, even if these people are the lesser of two evils. And if that sounds like a contradiction, then take a close look at it and you'll see what I mean. Because everything eventually, let's say if you look at this optimistically, could possibly be solved. And maybe in the future there will be complete, and just take this country, I don't know about other countries, but probably in most countries sooner or later. Um, there would be, let's say, complete equality between men and women in terms of pay and everything else. Complete, uh, so in complete gender equality, there would be, uh, everybody would be able to, uh, let's say, to vote equally without all kinds of onerous uh, voter ID laws in you know, usually backward states. Um, uh, if you're gay, you have the same rights for marriage and entry into the army and a million other things that everybody else has without arguing about it or having a ballot or an initiative. Uh, balances between the races uh, finally are established as completely equal. All these things could be uh, achieved. All this equality could finally be achieved. But if the one major underlying equality... Uh, one major underlying inequality is not righted, then all of this, despite the fact that it's all very nice and we're all working for this and we want this, in the end will be meaningless because we'll all be marching equally with the same rights down the road to corporate fascism, which is happening right now in this country. So 
when I make certain blanket statements or generalizations, I get some very angry emails from people. Uh, nobody writes letters anymore. Or, you know, if it was a, a show that took calls, I'd probably get angry calls. But I, as it is, I get angry emails on, where do I get them, boys and girls? I get them on Occupied Territory on Facebook. So Google Occupied Territory on Facebook, and you can comment on these shows. The shows themselves are posted later in the day or the next day on this website, uh, rather on this Facebook page, Occupied Territory. So people write to me. They say, look, you say that, for instance, I said something the other night on Sirius, which I've mentioned here a couple of times, that uh, an extreme point of view, I suppose, is, and I, and I have this point of view, is that I hope um, the Affordable Care Act crashes and burns. It would be nice if certain parts of it are retained, but I'll make these generalizations to prove a larger, to, 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 to have a larger goal, to go for a larger point in mind, which is this uh, obscene, crazy, anti-human, indecent income inequality between people, uh, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit more detail in a, in a minute or two. Um, so I'm just saying, you know, uh, the Affordable Care Act, for instance, brings more people health insurance. And it, uh, there are three or four parts of the Affordable Care Act that are uh, something that we all want. Well, they would all be there, plus everything else would be there, plus we would spend far less money and have control over hospitals and doctors if we had single payer, if we had Medicare for all. But since Obama and the people in the Democratic Party who are basically bribed by uh, corporations, they and corporations themselves actually help write the Affordable Care Act. That is why health insurance companies and drug companies and some doctors and some hospital organizations will thrive and make even more profits and charge you even more money um, than, uh, than they ever did. What the Affordable Care Act does is preserve the worst aspects of capitalism, and when it comes to people's health, that's, that's as wrong as it could possibly be. Nobody should have to suffer because they don't have enough money or they can't figure out a plan or because they're thrown off a plan or because they have bronze and they don't have platinum or whatever it is. All of this is unnecessary. This giant Affordable Care Act, uh, which is as big as about five phone books, only had to be one page long. And it just had to say, from now on, the people of America all have free health care and free drugs and free medical procedures. And the tax system is changed so that people who are very wealthy and, uh, you know, pay for and corporations pay their fair share. Not, you know, not some onerous 99 percent of everything they make, but some just a fair share of their taxes. So rich people don't even pay a fair share of taxes now. And corporations hardly even pay their taxes at all. And we have loopholes for people. And if we just taxed uh, every single transaction, electronic transaction, there are billions of them every day of stocks and bonds and everything else they sell in options, we could raise hundreds of billions of dollars. In other words, if we went after the rich, which the Democrats and Republicans never do, I would like to see the Affordable Care Act crash and burn. I would like to see it um, you know, be repealed. The trouble comes, of course, that uh, when you see there's other people like the Republicans and the Tea Partiers and the right-wingers, they want it also to be repealed. But they don't want it to be repealed for the same reason I do. I want it to be repealed so a much better, fairer, easier-to-understand, accessible law can be passed 
which entitles everybody in this country to decent health care without going broke and uh, without having to pay thousands of dollars, as you do still under this act, for co-pays and deductibles and uh, percentages uh, just for drugs or, or emergency care or any kind of care that would keep you from being in pain or keep you from dying. I, I want to sweep all this away. The people on the Republican side, the Tea Party side, they want to get rid of this um, Affordable Care Act because they don't really want to give anything to anybody. They don't want to pay any higher taxes, and they don't care if people die or suffer. They really don't. That's a big difference between people, and that's a big difference between motivation to repeal a bill. They don't care if people die or suffer. And if they do, that just means in a Darwinian sense, as far as these, these idiots are concerned, that they weren't uh, chosen by God or strong enough to make it in this world. So too bad. Now, of course, if one of these, uh, you know, one of these people uh, who opposes this bill on these bases, if they have a big accident in their RV or their truck, or if a tractor at the factory falls over on them and they have, or if they get cancer, God forbid, and they have uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars worth of medical bills. And uh, although they've worked hard all their life and they don't, you know, they take care of themselves and they can't afford it, then they'll go totally bankrupt. So they'll pay, they'll pay for their own, you know, um, uh, anti-human stance. But uh, so I'm making these general, generalities. And when it comes to Affordable Care Act, I would love to see the act, of course, uh, fall apart and for us to retain, you know, to recraft, let's say, a smaller new act, if we're not going to do single payer, which says that uh, health insurance companies, which there shouldn't be any anyhow, right, or drug companies who should be charging you $1 for any prescription. Um, what I'd like to see is they retain the part, of course, that says that no pre-existing condition can deny you access to health care. And uh, I would like to see, you know, the co-pays and deductibles be uh, negligible. If, they're gonna re- if we're going to retain any part of these things, it should be those parts. But why did I go off on this? Because the original point is this. Um, we can all work hard, and many of, us have, many of us have spent decades working hard at um, women's rights, civil rights, gay rights. We can, as I mentioned before, finally achieve equality, let's say, in some ideal future, maybe not too far away from now. Uh, we can achieve protection from, uh, from the, the predations of, uh, of corporations, you know, uh, that ruin our environment, that, uh, that ruin our food, all of these things. All of these things could be achieved one day. But if we don't reverse and completely change the income inequality in this country, the way people are allowed to have outrageous, obscene um, amounts of money and own land and property and have power uh, over politicians because they have so much, um, so much money, then nothing will ever change for the better. And we will continue in this country on a relentless march. And the, the march is not a march anymore. It's a trot. It's going to be breaking into a run down the road straight to fascism. And that's what's happening in this country because of the inequality of the money, which is why this show is called Occupied Territory to begin with. The territory of the United States, that is to say, the executive, the White House, the Congress, the Supreme Court, federal agencies, um, state governments, have been occupied by a foreign invasion, almost as if they had invaded, uh, you know, uh, with troops 
have been occupied by the rich. Probably, I don't know, 75 to 80 percent of every politicians, of all the politicians in this country, you know, thousands and thousands of state legislators, governors, uh, some big city mayors, some city council members, probably 90 percent of Congress, uh, you know, the president, clearly, uh, maybe obviously at least five people on the Supreme Court, they are truly controlled in their minds and in their actual circumstantial lives, and if they run for office, by rich people, by corporations. That's who they work for. They, they do not work for us. So while we're all working for equality in all these other ways and to save the environment, and I know you can't do everything at once, what we should really be at least considering, if not actually working actively for, which is why uh, Occupy had some troubles because they were trying to do too much at once. Um, and also the idea of protesting income inequality was too vague and not personal enough. In other words, it was difficult. It, it was easy for them and it's easy for me to show you the difference in figures or tell you the difference in figures. I can give you numbers about, let's say, a corporation executive making $15 million a year while a worker makes... Uh, you know, um, $8 an hour. So, uh, for instance, here, um, executives at Walmart, this is from a place that reports on these things. It's a, a great uh, website. Uh, I think it's a website or a blog called Too Much. It's just called Too Much. Executives at Walmart don't much at all like critics blasting them for paying out so little in wages. Last week in a New Jersey event, Walmart's U.S. chief, his CEO, Bill Simon, defiantly boasted that less than 1% of his workers earn at minimum wage levels. What was left unsaid is that most Walmart workers don't make much above the minimum, uh, which in New Jersey uh, was um, 7 25 an hour. And they just took a vote in New Jersey to raise it to 8 25 an hour. Can you imagine? People are going to get rich off that. As Mr. Simon himself admitted at a recent global retailing conference, in other words, Simon pronounced that this affair, global retailing, right, uh, that 475,000 Walmart associates, there's a million Walmart workers in this country, that 475,000 Walmart associates, which just means employees, some people might call them serfs, made over 25,000 last year. Okay, so half of them, according to the CEO, made over... Um, uh, 25000 last year. That still puts them smack in the middle of poverty. You understand? You live. I live. We have rent. We buy food. Maybe you have a car. You pay insurance. Uh, you know, registration. You have to buy gas. Uh, you have to buy food. You have to buy heat to stay alive in the winter. $25,000 a year? Eight twenty-five an hour? $10 an hour? No, 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 no. No, no, no. All right, so well, this guy, Simon, uh, has walking around the head of uh, Walmart uh, telling uh, people that uh, he says it's a lie that people are poor there. Over 25,000, uh, over 475,000 Walmart associates made over 25,000 last year. Well, so what? And, but it's still a statistic that leaves over half of Walmart's million workers making less than 25,000. Simon last week also ridiculed this Tuesday's ballot box effort to raise New Jersey's minimum wage. His own wage is $11.2 million a year. He made more in one day than minimum wagers make in two years. Let me say that again. The head of Walmart makes more in one day doing who knows what in his office or flying around on his private jet, which he has. He makes more in one day than people who stand up 40, 35, 40 hours a week 
uh, on their feet in his stores doing drudge work, trying to help other people buy pliers or a new shirt, he makes more in one day than those people make in two years. So in New Jersey on Tuesday, speaking of local initiatives, they passed a state uh, initiative or ballot initiative that said that they're going to raise the New Jersey state minimum uh, wage from 725 to 825. 825, which is approximately $15,000 a year. $15,000 a year. $16,000 a year. Can you imagine living on $16,000 a year? Maybe some of you do. Can you imagine? And that's what the state of New Jersey voted to do, uh, to raise it to that. And now they're very proud of themselves for doing that. Meanwhile, uh, there was an article in the New York Times uh, just, uh, just the other day in the business section. If you live in New York City, uh, you see tremendous amount of construction. There is construction seemingly on every block in New York City, but especially in midtown Manhattan and uh, in the area where all the uh, huge buildings are already. And this construction is 95% of this construction uh, are gigantic towers. Some of them are going to be 80 stories. So they are already 80 stories, 90 stories. One of them is going to be 120 stories high. It'll be taller than the World Trade Center was, right? 120 stories. This is how high these things are. And what are these things? These are uh, condominiums and apartments for the richest people on the planet. So the city is being, you, you can't even walk, you can't even hear yourself think because of construction going on in New York City. The traffic is destroyed uh, in New York City if you try to get anywhere. Sometimes, every once in a while, if there's a storm or if there's some kind of um, uh, high wind, uh, uh, these construction sites are dangerous because you're there 80 stories up or 90 stories up and during our Hurricane Sandy last year, uh, for weeks after the hurricane, uh, after the big storm, uh, a huge construction crane that was 80 stories up or 90 stories up on one of these biggest buildings that they're building for the rich uh, almost fell over onto the street and was hanging by a giant steel cable and had to be uh, secured. So these new buildings... Um, have, uh, you know, three, four, five-bedroom apartments. And who are they being bought by? People who have hundreds of millions of dollars, even billionaires, mostly billionaires, are buying these things. These, uh, the average apartment at, uh, let's see, 157, here's one, let's see, expected to open in 2013, 90 stories, 94 units on top of a 210-room uh, Hyatt Hotel. Uh, nicknamed the Billionaires Building because at least a dozen billionaires have purchased apartments here. The penthouse just sold for $90 million. The average apartment in this building is $55 million, no, I'm sorry, is $60 million. And uh, there was an interview with the real estate agent who really, do they have a soul, people who do things like this? People who make millions of dollars over uh, renting or selling apartments to billionaires? That's what they do in the world? While people all around them are sleeping on the streets and are sick and can't get medical care and are eating, you know, stuff, you know, five-day-old food from food banks if they're lucky. Who could live like this? Who could be a real estate agent? I, I just don't understand it. But the buyers for the who are the buyers for these places? So there are people who live in China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and England. They aren't even local people. They don't even live here. They're spending 
60, 70, 80, 90 million dollars on a place that they visit for one month a year on a shopping trip. Meanwhile, there are people who don't even have any place to live. They don't even have an apartment. They live on the street in New York City. There are tens of thousands of people who live in city shelters in these rundown buildings that are dangerous. And, of course, you can imagine what they're like because they don't have jobs or they don't have, uh, you know, the ability to make a living here in the big town. There are thousands and thousands of people who have billions of dollars who buy these apartments for $90 million, $60 million. Uh, if you want storage space in the basement, it's an extra 120000 If you also want a wine cellar for your personal collection, that's another $175,000. You've got your own swimming pool. You've got daycare for the kids, right? And people come buy these things as investments, and they don't even live there. What world do we live in? What world do we want? In New Jersey, they raised the minimum wage to $8.25 an hour. So you can work your ass off. You can work like a dog with everybody yelling at you, doing some drudge, humiliating job in a culture which doesn't seem to care about people. And you can wind up making $16,000, $17,000, $18,000, $20,000 a year, which is meaningless. You can starve on that in this country. And then you pay for your apartment or your, you know, or your trailer or wherever in a trailer park or something like that. Meanwhile, people who don't even live here, who come here one month a year to shop at Tiffany's or something, are spending $60 million a year. Uh, in August, in Philadelphia, they laid off 20%, 20% of the school district's employees. Um, these are um, people who are assistant principals, lunchroom monitors, nurses. Teachers, people who monitor playgrounds, nurses, teachers, teachers, people who teach children how to think, how to learn, nurses who keep them uh, from getting sick, and if they are sick, catch it and give them something to make them better. Children of this Philadelphia school system, 20% of the, of the people were laid off. Now, what do they need? They need $180 million. They need $180 million to plug this gap in the Philadelphia school system to hire these people back for the children of Philadelphia. You know, tens of thousands of children are children. The children are the future of the planet. They are our life regenerated. But we cast them aside like they're trash. Three apartments in one of these giant buildings here and there's five or six of them being built in New York, three apartments at $60 million each that people won't even live in, uh, they just buy them for investments or for shopping trips, would plug the gap in the uh, Philadelphia school system and hire back uh, 3,000 employees that were laid off and have no jobs themselves now and are going to go into poverty. What kind of world do we want? What kind of country do we want? You want to just keep going to the polls every two years and every four years and polling for a Democrat or a Republican? We need a socialist party. We need people out in the streets. We need a kind of a revolution here. This is out of control. This is our city, New York. This is your city in Iowa, in Colorado, wherever you are, in California, in Maine. You have to do something about it. If we don't do something about it, those people are like giant white sharks out there. They will keep coming at you until they eat everybody. I don't want to live in a country like that. If there's something I can do about it, I will. 
But this is what's going on in our country. Meanwhile, they're raising the minimum wage or giving you a bronze plan so that you can get a Band-Aid for 25 cents instead of a dollar. They keep handing out these, these morsels of bread to all of us and saying, don't you feel better now? And then spending $100 million on a place they live in one month a year and everybody else goes poor. It can't go on like that. Either there's going to be a revolution or there's going to be a corporate fascist state. The democracy is not able to handle this anymore. The only thing we can do, though, is work at a local level. All right. We'll be back next week. Cause I went walking.